0: And I just want to return to this tonight, we never get finishing what we started, and just to keep it fresh while it's in our minds, so I don't have to recap too much uh, if I leave it to next week, Uh, then we want to read from verse 9 of Matthew 6. In this manner therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. and Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And amen. All right, this morning in this series on prayer that we're doing entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, Uh, we come to uh, this model prayer that Jesus uh, gave his disciples and obviously has given for us. We said this is not a prayer that he himself prayed because he didn't need to ask to forgive us our debts and so forth. But it was a prayer that was like an index. It was pointers uh, so that we could uh, be reminded of what We should pray and how we should pray. And uh, we said this morning that it's interesting that Christ immediately in this model of prayer, he draws our attention right at the very, very start to the Father God. And that we're to focus initially before we ask for anything for ourselves or anyone else, that our immediate focus is to be on him first. And we talked about his name being holy. Hallowed is your name that we may glorify his name and all the things that his name uh, ensues from that name. And we talked about some of the wonderful names that God has called in the Bible. And then, of course, uh, he goes on to say uh, that your kingdom come. And so we must focus then on the kingdom. And all that that entails, his kingdom comes in our lives. that His will is done in our lives. that There's a manifestation of God's Uh, heavenly kingdom within us. He said the kingdom of God is within you. So if that's the case, then we need to see that. Not only we need to see but others around us need to see that. So he talks about the kingdom of God. And then, of course, uh, he goes on a little bit further than that and said that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so having focused on God himself and having glorified him, And having lifted his name up and having thought about his kingdom and his will being done in our lives, then we can begin to look at ourselves and our needs and our desires. And so this is where we're coming to this evening in this particular part of the prayer, which has got to do with us. Now, there are four petitions here. And it's interesting that the first one is physical and the other three are spiritual. So there's a ratio of three spiritual and one physical. Now that ought to tell us something. That ought to tell us that our spiritual lives ought to be of the utmost importance to God and to us. And the greater focus in our prayers is to be about our spiritual lives. And the lives of other people spiritually. But because he put the physical one first, he's also letting us know that God is manifestly interested in our physical, material needs. And because he put that first, he's letting us know that we need our needs met physically. Uh, We need to be well, we need to have our well-being so that we can attend to the spiritual things that we need to do. Uh, And so God sees no uh, uh, difference, or sorry, God sees no competition between the physical and the spiritual Obviously, the spiritual is the most important, but because he put the physical first, he's letting us know that he cares about the physical. And if we're ever going to be fully spiritual, then there's got to be some feeling of well being physically. We, we are a tripartite being we are spirit, we're soul, and we're body. And we can't disconnect those three. How many people know that they've got a howling toothache? It's very hard to pray, isn't it? It's very hard to feel spiritual. Have you got a howling toothache? uh, Because we're we're made that way. We're we're interconnected, uh, body, mind, and spirit. And so this is the order that's given in. And so he begins by saying to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And obviously then God is interested in our physical, material needs. Now bread here means bread. Literally bread. The bread that you eat. It's talking about food. It's talking about that which sustains this physical frame that we live in. So God is interested. Remember whenever Jesus raised the little one from the dead, Jairus' daughter. Remember the first thing he said to the parents? Give her something to eat. And so God is really interested in our daily bread. But it also signifies that which is our necessity. And so not just that which we eat, but that which is absolutely necessary for our well-being. Now all of us got different needs, all of us has different demands put upon us, but God is interested in every single facet of our lives. And so what is our necessity? What do we need for our well-being? And this is what we're to pray. Give us our daily bread. Now, this obviously tells us that our daily need, our daily necessity, our daily bread comes from God, that God fulfills our need through daily bread and daily necessity. If God should withhold the sun and the rain, if he should do that, we would be in serious, serious, serious difficulty, wouldn't we? We're worried about the the bees, because there's so few bees. Bees are dying all over the world. We're worried about that because it's them who pollinate the food. Now if God was suddenly to withhold the sun for six months, could you imagine the state this earth would be in, the crops and everything else? And so this is letting us know that it's God who gives us our daily bread. It is God who sustains us. First Timothy 4 In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. God gives us such a variety, such a diversity of food around this world. Now all of us, I suppose, depending which part we come from, we've got staple diets. Potatoes seems to be our staple diet. Whereas if you're a Filipino like Fernando, there it's rice. That's his staple diet. Now he's probably eating potatoes while he's here, but that's that's your staple diet. That's what you need. That's what sustains you. And so there's such a variety of food. And by the way, for those who are, uh, I suppose, what could you call it? For those who does not does not like meat, and uh, you you feel that. You couldn't possibly eat meat because an animal would have to be killed. Now, I don't mind if you don't like meat because you just don't like meat. My wife is not really a meat eater because she doesn't like meat. It's not because the thought of animals being killed. Uh, Notice here that Paul said, For every creature of God is good for food. All right, so there's nothing wrong with killing for food. That's quite acceptable. It's biblically okay. If you don't like meat, that's fine. But don't try to make a point of it because... Well, the wee lambs and the sheep and the pigs gets killed. Well, that's what they're there for. God has given the creatures to eat. All right, I'm going to get into trouble if I keep on going that down that road, aren't I? (laughs) That's fighting talk to some people. Now notice here that it's daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Now this stops us from being presumptuous or even greedy. Stops us presuming God gives us our daily bread. Now, it's okay to look ahead a little bit. And it's okay if you can have, you can have a little savings. That's fine. That's okay. But God is very concerned that in the doing of all of that, providing for our future, God is very concerned that we don't become wrapped up in that. And that we don't take that to the extreme. Like the man in the Bible who said, I have much goods. My barns is bursting. I tell you what I will do. I will pull down my barns and I will make bigger barns. And I will say, thou hast much goods laid up. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Sometime, way well, out in the future, sometime tomorrow out there we'll die. But right now, look at what I've got. And God said, the Bible says, thou fool this night, your soul shall be required of you. And so rather than us become presumptuous and thinking, well, I'm, I'm well catered for it. Listen, we have found out through this past 18 months all over the world that all of the pension plans and all of the savings and all of the everything we have and depend on, listen, can be gone in a second. can be gone in a moment. Those who had invested in the Icelandic banks, suddenly it's gone. Over, literally overnight it's gone. Everything's gone. Everything ever worked for is gone. And so this is why we have to look to God as being our source and be able to say, God, give me this day, this day, my daily bread. Tomorrow will take care of itself, Lord, if I look to you this day. Then tomorrow I'll look for you for that day and the next day for that day. This is what he's trying to get through to us. So this stops us being presumptuous or even greedy. In Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, the wisest man that ever lived wrote these words. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Mm. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 has something to say to this young pastor. This was his prodigy. This is him starting out in ministry. The first Prover, sorry, First Timothy chapter six. In verse six, he says, "Now godliness with contentment is great gain. for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out." And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. See what Paul was warning of here? So that that doesn't become, it's okay to have and it's okay if God has blessed you materially. That's fine as long as it is in perspective. As long as you've got that contained. As long as you know who is the source. As long as you honor God with it. If God blesses you uh, materially, it's for the purpose, not just to bless you, but for you to be a blessing. That you may bless others. And so, give us this day our daily bread. Notice he said, give us our bread. Daily bread, not me and mine. Us are. So this reminds us that we have, we who have plenty, have an obligation to those who have little. We who have plenty are obligated to help those who have little. Of course, having prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Then, unless we are ill unless we are not able-bodied, and unless we are currently out of work and just cannot get one, try as we may, unless all of those things are there, then our <laughs> obligation is, is to work and to try to do everything we can to provide and to help ourselves. God is the source, but he uses many, many channels, and your job may be his chief channel at this time. Now, it may not last it may go, but at this present moment, that's what you have to do. So we can't just lie in bed and say, Lord, just bless me, because that generally just doesn't work unless, unless you can't work, unless you haven't got a job and can't get a job, unless, unless. But all things being equal. This is why the Bible in Proverbs 20:13 says, Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will be satisfied with bread. Proverbs 31, that great chapter about woman, it says she watches over the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Glory to God. Now, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or our one other uh, gospel says our trespasses or our sins. Let's just Let's just not done to forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive other their debts or their sins against us. Now, isn't this interesting? That our Lord speaks about forgiveness in the same breath as he talks about our daily bread. Isn't that interesting? In fact, what he's really saying here is if we can read between the lines, is that Just as bread is absolutely necessary for our outer man, our physical body. So forgiveness is absolutely necessary for our spirit, for our inner man. It's just as important. God will bless us and help us physically. But we need to take care of what's happening in our lives spiritually. This is the first time the word and appears in this prayer. Notice that he's linking it with the daily bread, the forgiveness and the daily bread. He's linked the two together. Now, forgiveness is tough. Make no mistake about it. It's not easy to forgive. If you think it's easy, wait until you have to ask for it until you have to ask forgiveness, then you find it is not easy. This is something we really, really struggle with. I was re- reading recently about uh, Simon, uh, I forget his second name. He was the old guy. He's dead now. He was the Jew who started up the organization to hound down Nazis, wherever they may find them in the world, and bring them to justice. Wiesenthal, I think is his name. And I was reading recently where how that uh, during this period uh, of, of Nazis, uh, it was a hospital, it was on the field. And he was on the field. And a an nurse called him and she said, There's a young Nazi uh, officer here and he desperately wants to speak to a Jew. Would you come and meet him? And so he went up. This young Nazi officer had his head all bandaged, he was in a bad way, he was obviously dying. He said, are you a Jew? He said, I am. He said, I need your forgiveness. He said, let me tell you what I have done. And he started to tell him all the things that he had done and how that his company, how they'd heard up 200 Jews, put them into this building, filled it full of petrol cans and began to lob hand grenades in. It was a two-story building. And those who jumped out, they shot them dead as they jumped. And he said, I stood and I watched a mother and a father and a child being shot to death as well as being burned alive. And he says, I can't forget it. And I'm dying. And I must ask your forgiveness. He wrote this in a book. And he said, when he said that, he thought, what am I going to do? Here is my bitterest enemy. Here is somebody that I loathe and despise. And he's asked me to forgive him for what he has done to my people. And he said, I stood and I looked at him for a moment. And I said nothing. I turned my back and went out the door. And let him go to his maker, unforgiven by men. And he says, long after the war was over, he's often I would think about that moment that I stood with that young Nazi officer. And I wondered, did I do the right thing? Then he said, For what would you do if you were my circumstances? What would you do? Would you forgive? That's a big question, isn't it? Could you forgive? See, as you listen to that story, you think, he's going to forgive. But he couldn't. And he didn't. But then he says, but could you? It's not easy, is it? In fact, it's so difficult, you need the grace of God. You need the grace of God to be able to do it. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's something we really have to think about and work at and pray for. This is so important to God that Jesus puts it in the middle of this prayer and as I said this morning, he doesn't even leave it there. It's because when he finishes, I say this prayer, you know what I mean, this model prayer. Because he doesn't leave it there. Because whenever he finishes it, he comes right back to this again. For in verse fourteen, he says, "For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." That's a sobering thought, isn't it? In fact. In Mark eleven, this is so important to God that in Mark eleven, in Jesus speaking about faith, he brings up the subject again. It seems unrelated, doesn't it? Prayer and forgiveness, faith and forgiveness. But it isn't. It's not unrelated. You remember Jesus went to the fig tree thinking he might find some figs, and there was none there, and he cursed it and says, You know, hereafter if no man eat fruit from you forever, and it died. And the next day, whenever they passed it, Peter saw that it it's dead. And he says, look, master, the fig tree you, you cursed has withered and died. You know, and Jesus taught then about having faith that could remove mountains and so forth. But then he said, Mark eleven twenty-five, 25, And when you stand praying, I mean, that just seems totally unrelated, doesn't it? And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So even he links this with our very faith. And without faith it is impossible to please God. And faith is the conduit between earth and heaven. So it's a big, big issue as far as God is concerned. Matthew chapter 18. Let's have just a little look further at this. The truth is, you and I owe a great debt to God because we have broken his laws over and over and over. He is the God of justice. We are the unjust. And we have broken his laws again and again. That has indebted us to his justice. But our debt is so great that we could never ever hope to repay that debt. Our only hope is if God himself would wipe the slate clean because we can't do it. We could never repay the debt. And God did wipe the slate clean because he sent his son Jesus to pay the debt for us on the cross. And because he sent Jesus to pay our great debt on the cross, this is why if we can't forgive, this is why God is so angry and he hates unforgiveness. If God went to the extent of even giving his only begotten son to die for to pay our debt, how dare we, God says, not forgive the debt of somebody that owes us. To see how this would make God angry? You see how God believes this is a big, big, big issue with him? And so Jesus shows this uh, through a parable. In Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. That was more than any Jew would expect to forgive anybody anything. Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a lot of times, isn't it? I think by the time you had forgiven that much, you'd have long since forgotten. You wouldn't be counting anymore, would you? You'd have lost count. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I have looked up every book you can find. You can hardly get two people to agree. Let's just say this was an incredible, unbelievable amount. God wants to show us something here. And Jesus picked a number that was so vast and so big that it was beyond comprehension for the ordinary man. So he says, you owe me 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. That was how things were in those days. Do you remember the, uh, do you remember the woman who came to uh, the prophet, Elisha, and she said, you know, you know, husband was a prophet. You know, your servant, my husband, is dead. And now the creditors come to take away my two sons to be slaves. Can you do anything? Because she couldn't pay. That's the way it was in those days. And so, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Well, that sounded grand, but the fact is there was no possible way he could ever, ever pay this amount. And the king knew that. Have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. There's a wonderful act of mercy. See, this is like us and God. We owe debt to God an insurmountable amount, an uncalculable amount. We could not even begin to imagine how in debt to God we were. We had no hope of repenting it. And out of mercy, out of compassion, God sent his son to pay the price. Now he says, I forgive you. You're free. But look what happens. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Let's try to get this into some perspective. A hundred denarii. Compared with 10,000 talents... Vincent said, and he was a great theologian, said, this is one millionth part of 10,000 talents. A one millionth part. <laughs> See how Jesus is using extreme numbers here to get our attention? So you can be sure when Jesus said this, all ears pricked up. The servant who owed him a 100 denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me. Same words, isn't it? Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Hmm. He probably couldn't pay either. And he would not. That dirty rascal, the ungrateful Hmm, can't think of a word right now. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. How in the world is he going to pay the debt in prison? He can't work in prison. He can't do business in prison. But it just shows you the, the evilness, the wickedness of this particular man. And so when his fellow servants saw what he had done, They were very grieved and they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had a pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. But he couldn't pay, could he? He delivered him to the torturers. So, now this this is one of those most sobering statements that Jesus makes once in a while. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is what makes God angry. We who come to him we who came with all of our huge debt, and He freely in mercy forgave. And somebody comes with this wee pitily debt to us. And we make it into a great big mountain of debt. They owe me big time. Well, we owed God big time. And God forgave us. So He said, You forgive. And furthermore, He says, If you don't forgive, He says, I won't forgive. You no, Jesus kept reiterating that very, very serious point. If you don't forgive, I won't forgive. So this is a really serious point that he's making whenever we're praying. And so while we're at prayer, if there's someone that we haven't forgiven and God brings that to our attention, then we really need to forgive. Then he said, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil or the evil one or even the evil thing it can be either or. The word is a little bit, we're not exactly sure. So deliver us either from evil or the evil one. Both applies. This part of the prayer has, has puzzled many because it would seem to contradict what James says about God in James 1, 13 and 14 where he said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it brings birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, what does it mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one and the evil thing. The New Living Translation, the second edition, puts it this way. And don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The thought here is that God may preserve us from temptations that would lead us astray and lead us to ruin. Now the fact that the Lord wants us to pray this shows us that we're susceptible to it. It shows us how easily Because we've got to keep praying this. It shows us how easily that we can yield to temptation, isn't it? How often have you and I been shocked to the core? We've heard about someone that we thought it would be impossible for them ever to fall. But they did. That's why the Bible says, Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Because all of us are susceptible to temptation. All of us can go down a wrong path. His temptation is so subtle. Now, if it's a great big obvious blatant one, maybe that's easier to handle. But the devil is subtle. And he comes craftily. And he takes us on the blind side. And before we know it, we're thinking wrong, we're doing wrong, we're acting wrong, we're going down a wrong path. Jesus said, pray that that doesn't happen. Pray that that doesn't happen. Now, Although God himself is not the tempter, but he will allow us to be tempted in order for us to see how weak we are in ourselves and or how strong we are in him when we overcome it. And so we need to be reminded. And so it's important that, that we do take this aspect of this prayer and say, Lord, I need your help every day. Because I never know the moment when the evil one will come along with a real, subtle, devastating temptation. And while I think I may be strong, and while I think I may be handling everything, suddenly this can come on the blind side. And before we know it, we're weak at the knees, and we're wobbling, and we're about to give in. See, this is why... Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, he said, watch and pray. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. It's not just enough even to pray, it's to watch and pray, to be careful, to look out, not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Temptation. Remember Jesus said this whenever he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he took with him Peter, James and John. Remember how that he went a little further and he was praying and what did they do? They, they fell asleep, didn't they? And Jesus came back, could you not watch with me for one hour and he went back to pray then he came back again. They were still sleeping and then the end he says, sleep on. Sleep on, he said. But he said, watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. Now, Peter didn't get the message. He didn't get the message. And here's what happened in John chapter 18. John's Gospel, chapter 18. If I can find it quickly. Remember Jesus was being arrested in the garden? And he said, Who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and then verse 9. Verse 8, sorry. Matthew 18, verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the same might be fulfilled, which you spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter having his sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. That was John. Big mistake. Now he meant well. Big mistake. He wasn't up for this. Jesus in fact warned him about this very thing. But he was not listening. Note what happens. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who he kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now you know the story well enough. Three times he denied his Lord. Should not have been there. Was not watching and praying. And he yielded it to this temptation. He thought he could handle it. He says, Lord, have all these forsake you, I'll die for you. Jesus said, will you? He says, that rooster, that rooster will crow. You'll have denied me three times in the morning before that rooster crows. See, he wasn't as big and strong as he thought he was. So Jesus is telling us here that we're to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Watch and pray that you may not enter that you may not enter into temptation. Now, thought may be in your mind. What about Jesus? What about Jesus in the wilderness temptations? Did it not say that after that period, how that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one? Yes, it does say that. It does say that. It didn't say that God would be the tempter, but it did say that the Holy Spirit led him there, directed him there to be tempted, to allow him to be tempted. Now, and this is very, very important, the father was not allowing Jesus to be tempted by the evil one to see if whether he would succeed or fail. Don't ever think that. Or to see what was in him. The father already knew what was in him. In fact, at his baptism, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he was not being tempted tempted and tested by the evil one so that the father could see whether he was really up to the challenge. God knew he was up to it. (laughs) No, this was to show, listen to it, this was to show those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth that Jesus was and is the victorious one, the all-conquering one, the one who could defeat the enemy, the one who could take the very word of God and beat him. Amen. And it's to show us at the same time that we have the same weapons at our disposal when the tempter comes to us. That's if we're watching and praying that we've got the word of God that we can use against him just the way that Jesus used against him. You see, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17, 15 in his great prayer. I do not pray, he's praying to the Father about us. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one or the evil thing. So in other words, God is not going to wrap us up in cotton wool and put us in a wee glass bowl. He's going to allow us to be tempted. He's going to allow the evil one to come against us. But if we're watching and we're praying and we've got God's word, then we can overcome and defeat this evil one. Why? Because... Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. Because he always, the Bible says, causes us off to triumph in Christ. Now, the devil can't legally or lawfully do anything to you. He's lost that. Through Christ, he's lost that. But it doesn't mean he can't harass. It doesn't mean he can't come against and try to tempt. But he can't legally and lawfully take over your life. If he could do that, he had done it long ago. But he can't. He cannot do it. And that's what frustrates him. That's why the enemy is so angry. Because he can't do that with us. But he can come subtly, sometimes blatantly too, and try to tempt us to get us to fall. But, thank God, the greater one lives inside of us. Now, Arthur Pink, a great old preacher of old, he says something about these four requests. He said they are for the supply of our own needs. He says, here's he said about these four requests. They are for providing grace, give us. They are for pardoning grace, forgive us. Preventing grace, lead us not into temptation. And preserving grace, deliver us. That's all the grace of God, isn't it? Our daily food, our shield, our shelter from the evil one been able to handle what comes against it it's all of His grace. It's not of our strength, it's not of our ability. And then finally he said, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, he ends up where he started. And we should end up where we start in prayer. Now, all of us, including this preacher, All of us find that very often we pray and we start out, maybe not exactly using those words, but we start out glorifying, worshipping, praising God, thanking Him for who He is, what He's done, His name, His glory, His majesty, His kingdom, every His will. Then we go on to our needs and what our desires is and praying for others and all of that. And at that point, that's usually when we stop, isn't it? You know, well, I prayed for everybody. I prayed for me. I've glorified God. Meticulous is done. That's it. Over... Thank God I'm away. Instead of at that moment beginning to glorify Him again and thanking Him for His might and His power and His glory and His majesty and His kingdom, honoring His kinship, How often we fail even to do that at the end of our prayers. Now, if we do that, we're bringing ourselves back back to God's glory, back to his majesty, back to his kingdom, back to everything. that's. And once we do that, it lifts our faith. And it reminds us who we've been talking to. It reminds us who we have been asking from. And it helps us to be able to believe. It lifts our faith to believe that the God that we have just spoken to is who we say he is, is who his word says, and he is more than able to meet every and any need that is in our lives. He's mighty and he's able to answer every prayer. So this is more than just a doxology. This is more than just a way to end a prayer. This is doing something for us. It enlarges our mind, our thinking, and our faith begins to rise. Our hope begins to rise once we do this. And then we believe, truly believe that God will supply our needs and will fulfill the desires of our heart. Luther said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee. Bring for his grace and power such. None can ever ask too much glory to God. Oh, but do we do this? I fail to do it at times. I think, Lord, I prayed, I'm busy, there's stuff to do, there's places to go, there's people to see, there's things to happen. And then we forget, just at the end, just to say, God, I just want to to mention again just how great you are, how powerful you are, just how majestic you are, just how able you are to do all of this that I have asked for. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, He who is the blessed and holy potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Forever. (laughs) Think of those two words, forever. That's a long time, isn't it? Forever. You see, Many nations and kingdoms and empires in this old world has come and gone. They're in the dustbin of history. You've got to go back to encyclopedias to even remember who they are. And they were mighty upon the earth. They were superpowers of their day, but they're gone into dust. They're just a bunch of ruins in those countries. I visited some of them, I know what I'm talking about. But this kingdom that we're praying about, this kingdom will go forever and forever and forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. He's an everlasting king. There is no end to this kingdom. Ephesians 3 and 20, 21. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ. Note this, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <sighs> I think that whenever we begin to pray those prayers, I think that God becomes very big in our eyes. And I think then that we look at our needs and our desires and our problems and we get into perspective. That this mighty, majestic God is Lord over all. And whenever we lift Him high and see Him in His majesty and His glory, I said this morning, sometimes when you begin to pray this way, you just forget about praying about anything else. And that's okay to do that at times because we're magnifying him. So we are. I'll close with this. I've, I've read this so many times, but I, I, just, I just love this. I think this is great. In Revelation chapter four, right at the end of chapter four, now, here's a doxology. Here's an ending for you. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There's a threefold doxology. And over in chapter 5, just over the page, and verse 12 or 13. No, verse. Yeah, verse 13, further down in verse 13. Blessing and honor and glory and power. There's fourfold doxology. Be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then chapter seven. And down in verse 12. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. And might, verse seven, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's as, if the, it's as if you just cannot think of anything more to say. It's just building and building and building and building and building. And you can find that sometimes in your prayers when you start praising God and worshiping the Lord and begin to magnify and glorify Him. There's times you just run out of what am I going to say next? You can't think of an adjective big enough to describe who He is. And when you get to that point in prayer, let me tell you, it's exciting. It's good. It's good to be in that place. I wish I could be there every single day. I'm not there yet. I wish I could be. But it's great. But in those moments when you touch God in that type of prayer, let me tell you, all, everything else fades into insignificance in the light of His glory and grace. Amen? So, have you got a room? Have you got a secret place? Have you got a spot where you meet with the Lord? And you switch the TV off and you lay the paper down and you shut Facebook down and you put the computer off and all that stuff and you say, Lord, I'm just going to take these moments and I'm just coming into your presence. and I'm just going to sit before you. And sometimes you don't even say anything. Sometimes you say nothing. Sometimes you just sit in his presence and just meditate upon who he is and then begin to pray after that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we think of your prayer life. We're humbled by it. You who are the very Son of the very God, and yet on earth, you continually talk to your Father. Lord, help us to have that desire and passion to speak to our Heavenly Father and to come before Him in awe and wonder. And to realize that He is a mighty God and that nothing is impossible to Him who believes. Lord, help us to magnify You above every need, every circumstance, to see that Your hand lifted up. Lord, we thank You that You can take care of whatever the need is, that You can meet it for Your honor and for Your glory. So this incoming week, as we come before you, may we have those special moments in prayer where we felt that we have touched heaven, we felt we've been into the throne room, we felt we've stood before Almighty God, and He has heard every request, and He knows every need, and He's willing and He's able to meet it. Thank you, Lord, for this. In Christ's name. Amen.